Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was back to work for many New Yorkers. On Tuesday, July the 6th, 1982, the day after the July 4th long weekend. As usual, thousands of commuters from New Jersey were heading into Manhattan. On that morning, many of them might have been sporting sunburns and hangovers. The American Independence Day holiday was always a weekend full of parades, fireworks, barbecues, and family get-togethers. But for the Podgis family, who lived on the fabled Jersey Shore, the holiday weekend wasn't a time to get together with family. In fact, they rarely saw one another. Barbara Jean Chesersky was the eldest daughter of Alfred Podgis, who in 1969 had married Rosemary Franz, a widow with six children. But with ten children between them, their domestic arrangements had not quite settled into a Brady Bunch-style harmony. Rosemary's kids hated their new stepfather, who was a gruff disciplinarian and was known to collect guns. He would often take his anger out on his new wife and stepchildren. In fact, the Podgis home was not unfamiliar to the local police. There had been numerous calls logged to that address, and most of them involved domestic disputes. Rosemary's eldest son, Mark, had been in trouble as a teenager and was now reportedly in prison in Texas. And a daughter named Dawn had been a runaway. Now, only the youngest child was still at home. But apparently, he had been sent to boarding school in Canada to ease tensions within the family. On the Tuesday morning after the long weekend, Barbara Chazersky had not been able to reach her parents, and neither of them had shown up for their jobs. 58-year-old Alfred and 56-year-old Rosemary both worked for the U.S. Postal Service and had rarely ever missed a day and Barbara just happened to be their boss. Barbara's youngest brother, 18-year-old Scott, was back home for the summer, but when she called his work at a local auto shop, they told her he hadn't shown up either. 
Maybe he was playing hooky off of work because he had a school friend visiting from Canada. But as the day wore on with no word from either of her parents or brother, Barbara called the local police. Could they just swing by and do a welfare check? Everyone knew everyone in the small town of Lock Harbor, New Jersey. So the local police chief and a patrolman headed over to the Podgis home at 401 Euclid Avenue. When the officers arrived, there was no answer at the door. Looking in the windows, they couldn't see anyone inside. Barbara had given them permission to enter the home if no one answered the door. So one of the officers climbed through an unlocked window and opened the front door. The house was a mess. Furniture askew, unwashed dishes in the sink, unmade beds. It always looks like this, said one of the officers who had been to the house before. But a few things stood out as odd. A hand truck, Dolly, sitting in the middle of the living room, seemed out of place. And it looked like someone had been cooking in the kitchen. A whisk stood in a bowl of pancake mixture, and the smell of bacon permeated the air. The officers looked upstairs, but other than more disorder, nothing seemed troubling. Maybe the Podguses had gone away for the long weekend, and just hadn't bothered to tell their eldest daughter. The police contacted Barbara Chazersky and suggested as much. Her parents were probably away, and maybe her brother and his Canadian friend had gone too. But Barbara still felt uneasy. She knew there was domestic problems in the home. Since her youngest brother had returned from boarding school, there had been more arguments. And she also knew her stepfather had guns. Did you check everywhere, she asked them? The closets? The basement? The police agreed to go back. Returning to the unkept house, the two officers did as they were asked. They looked in the closets, under tables, and in the basement. But all they found was more clutter. Heading back upstairs, the police went into the master bedroom. Nothing seemed amiss, but this time one of the officers decided to pull back the sheets on the bed. Nothing. But then he turned the mattress over. He yelled out to his colleague. There was a huge blood stain on the mattress. The blood had soaked through the mattress onto the box spring and onto the hardwood floor underneath the bed. Also lying under the bed was a 22 caliber rifle. What had begun as a routine welfare check had now turned into a full-scale investigation, the likes of which the local police department had never dealt with. Something sinister had happened in that house, and now four people were missing, a middle-aged couple and two teenage boys. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a shocking crime. It began with a friendship 
between two teenage boys, one Canadian, the other American, on summer vacation. But what was supposed to be a carefree holiday on the New Jersey shore quickly turned into a terrifying journey into darkness. Four people have vanished after the July 4th long weekend, and evidence left behind points to deadly violence. Will anyone be found alive? And if so, what terrifying story will they reveal? Who will tell the truth about what really happened? And who will pay the ultimate price for that fateful night in the house on Euclid Avenue? This is Nightmare in New Jersey, The Bruce Curtis Story, Episode 1. The suspect wanted in a double homicide last week has been The sound of the telephone ringing woke Alice Curtis up from a deep sleep. She glanced over at her clock radio. It was 2.30 in the morning, Wednesday, July the 7th. Alice was alone in the big farmhouse in Mount Hanley, Nova Scotia, where she lived with her husband and their youngest son. The couple's two eldest daughters had already moved away. Alice's husband, Jim, was in Halifax for the week due to his job with the Canadian Armed Forces. And their son, Bruce, was away visiting a friend from school in New Jersey. A phone call in the middle of the night was rarely good news. And the voice on the other end of the phone told Alice that an RCMP patrol car from the local detachment in Bridgetown was sitting in her driveway. An officer needed to speak with her right away. Alice's first thought was her husband, Jim. Had something happened in Halifax? She herself was just recovering from an emergency surgery, and maybe both of them needed to slow down a little. But the Canadian Mountie wasn't there about Jim Curtis. The officer wanted to know if Alice had spoken with her son, Bruce. No, said Alice, explaining that Bruce was visiting a school friend in New Jersey. Yes, said the officer. He was aware that Bruce was in New Jersey. But something had happened at the home he was visiting. The officer told Alice that it looked like there had been some kind of violent altercation in the home and now four people were missing, including her 18-year-old son, Bruce Curtis. Back in Lock Arbor, New Jersey, the search for the four missing people was already in high gear. County investigator William Lucia had been called in, and crime scene technicians were combing through the Podgis house. Along with the blood-soaked mattress in the master bedroom, investigators had discovered blood splatter on the wall behind the bed, and it looked like someone had tried to clean it up. Looking through other rooms in the messy house, the police discovered 
an assortment of guns and ammunition. Alfred Podgis was a known collector, and guns weren't the only thing he collected. According to his children, Alfred was a hoarder. He had a baseball card collection valued at $20,000 and a coin collection worth thousands, both of which the police discovered untouched in the house. They also found two rings belonging to Rosemary. But why they were in the hutch in the dining room was a mystery. The only item missing appeared to be Rosemary's wallet. The police also noted the dolly in the living room. Had it been used to carry something heavy? The most disturbing evidence was discovered in the basement. Hidden behind the furnace were two brown plastic garbage bags stuffed with blood-soaked sheets and pillows. Outside in the yard, the police discovered a vinyl bag in the bushes. The attached ID tag read Bruce Curtis, RR1 Middleton, Mount Hanley, Nova Scotia. Inside the bag were books and a pair of binoculars. And oddly, a prescription bottle with traces of an unidentified white powder and a syringe. There was also a diary in the bag containing several pages of bizarre writings that referenced death, suicide, and homoerotic sexual fantasies. The bag and its contents confirmed that the Canadian teenager had been with the Podgis family. But where was he now? The police also confirmed that the couple's 1978 Chevrolet van was missing, along with the family's German Shepherd dog. The next-door neighbor said he had seen the van backed up to the side of the house the previous day. Interviewing Barbara Chizersky, Rosemary's eldest daughter, who had first alerted the police, she told investigators that she had last seen her mother three days earlier on Saturday, July the 3rd. A few days before that, she had run into her brother with his Canadian friend, but she couldn't remember the friend's name. He was tall and very shy, she told the investigators. When asked about the relationship between her brother and her stepfather, Barbara admitted that there had been conflict. All of Rosemary's kids had either run away from home or left over the years because of Alfred Podgis. And Scott, the youngest, had been sent to boarding school. Now that he was back for the summer, the tension in the house had escalated. But as far as Barbara knew, Scott was busy with his job and most recently spending time with his Canadian school buddy. For police investigators, the disappearance of Alfred and Rosemary Podgis and the two teenagers didn't make any sense. And knowing that the family van and dog were also missing made the whole thing even stranger. Something violent had obviously taken place in the house and someone had tried to cover it up. Were they dealing with a murder, a kidnapping, or both? There hadn't been a murder in the quiet village of Loch Arbor in over 22 years. 
But that was all about to change. The day after the Podgus family had been reported missing, County Investigator William Lucia received a call informing him that two bodies had been found in Pennsylvania, approximately 250 miles west of Lock Arbor, New Jersey. The bodies of a middle-aged man and woman had been found the night before in Ravensburg State Park, and they fit the descriptions that had been sent out on a missing persons bulletin. The woman, clothed in a white nightgown and pink flowered housecoat, had been wrapped in a sleeping bag, while the naked male victim had been stuffed into a blue trunk. Both bodies had been pushed down a steep ravine in the park, about 40 feet from the road. Next to the bodies, the police found other evidence, including a blood-stained handkerchief, white nylon rope, brown plastic garbage bags, towels, sheets, and a foam mattress. A grid search of the ravine also turned up a man's gold ring with the inscription RFF to AKKP 5-2-1969. It was Alfred Podgus's wedding ring. An autopsy would later reveal that Alfred Podgus had died from a single gunshot wound to the head behind the right ear. Crime scene investigators had also discovered skull fragments in the pillow on the bed, indicating Alfred had likely been sleeping when he was shot. Rosemary Podgus had been shot once in the abdomen. A 30 caliber bullet was recovered. The pathologist noted that the bullet had entered her body at a unique downward angle. Detective William Lucia called Barbara Chizersky right away to give her the shocking news. Her mother and her stepfather were dead. The missing persons case was now a double homicide investigation. But the detective had even more devastating news. They were now searching for two murder suspects, her brother, Scott Franz, and his Canadian schoolmate, Bruce Curtis. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Bruce Curtis and Scott Franz were friends. The two 18-year-olds had met at King's Edge Hill, an exclusive boarding school in Windsor, Nova Scotia. In the summer of 1982, the boys were finally leaving the prestigious school and heading home. They had just graduated and were looking forward to their summer break before heading off to university in the fall. Bruce Anthony Curtis was the youngest child of James Curtis, a former Air Force captain, and his wife, Alice. The Curtises were a close-knit Canadian family who lived on a 750-acre farm in Mount Hanley, Nova Scotia, located in the picturesque Annapolis Valley. Bruce had two older sisters, Anne, who was studying to be a doctor, and Carol, who was also away at university. The Curtis family placed great value on higher education and encouraged all of their children to strive academically. At King's Edge Hill, the oldest private school in North America, Bruce was a straight-A student with marks in the 90s. He was on the debating team and loved writing short stories. He was a shy, awkward teenager who friends said was more interested in reading Tolkien than chasing girls. And he hadn't even bothered to get his driver's license, something boys his age usually couldn't wait to do. Bruce was headed to Dalhousie University in Halifax in the fall to study science. He hoped to become an astrophysicist, while his friend Scott Franz's future was a little less certain. The young American was not quite as studious as his Canadian schoolmate. More extroverted and charismatic, the diminutive Franz was popular with girls and loved to brag about his family's wealth. Bruce and Scott 
were both outsiders in their own way. And while they seemed an odd pair, they bonded over their love of board games and computers. So, it was an intriguing offer when Scott phoned Bruce and invited him to New Jersey for the July 4th American Long Weekend. Scott lived in Lock Arbor, a small village of 300 residents on the New Jersey shore, approximately 80 kilometers south of Newark, New Jersey. Scott told Bruce that he lived in a seaside mansion. We've got cars and servants, he said. Bruce's parents didn't know Scott Franz or his family, but they encouraged Bruce to go. It would be the first holiday on his own and a reward for graduating with high marks. For Bruce, growing up in rural Nova Scotia, a trip to New York State sounded a little intimidating and outside his comfort zone. But maybe it would be fun. Scott really wanted him to come and even suggested that they could visit the Big Apple, which was less than two hours away by car. On June 29, 1982, Bruce Curtis flew to Newark Airport, where he was met by Scott and his stepdad, Alfred Podgus. The plane arrived three hours late, and Alf, as everyone called him, was already in a bad mood because he had missed a meeting. As first impressions went, Bruce did not like Mr. Podgus. When they arrived at the Podgus home at 401 Euclid Avenue in Lock Arbor, Bruce was taken aback. While Scott had portrayed himself as a wealthy kid from the States at their Canadian private school, Bruce quickly discovered that his friend had not been telling the truth. Scott Franz lived with his mother, Rosemary Podgus, and his stepfather in a run-down three-story house nowhere near the ocean. The outside of the house was an unattractive, faded stucco, while the inside was a cluttered mess. There were no servants or fleet of cars. It was obvious that the family was not wealthy. In fact, Alfred and Rosemary both worked for the U.S. Postal Service. Any extra money they did have had gone into paying the annual $8,000 tuition for Scott's private school. Rosemary had sent her youngest son to boarding school in Canada, hoping he would learn some discipline and stay out of trouble. He had already stolen the family van once in an attempt to run away. Plus, Scott and his stepdad did not get along, so life was a little easier in the home on Euclid Avenue when Scott was away. Alfred Pogus was not an easy man for anyone to spend time with. He kept guns in the house on a rack in the living room, and the upstairs walls were riddled with bullet holes. He had a violent temper and had threatened his stepkids on numerous occasions. Bruce had never experienced family violence. The Curtis household back in Nova Scotia was fairly idyllic. His dad never even raised his voice. But it was soon clear to him that Scott's home life was tumultuous. 
Bruce instantly regretted coming to New Jersey. But he felt sorry for Scott, so he figured he would stick it out for the week. As the July long weekend progressed, Scott and Bruce spent most of their time away from the Podgis house. While Rosemary was pleasant and friendly, her husband was not. Better stay clear, thought Bruce. So, they hung out at local fast food restaurants and went to the mall. Scott didn't seem to have any other friends in town, so it was just the two of them. On the night of July 3rd, Scott's mum suggested that they stay out late because, according to her, Alfred was in a foul mood. The two teenagers sat in the family's van in the garage for several hours, listening to music and talking. Scott was finally opening up and telling Bruce the truth about his chaotic life in the house on Euclid Avenue. According to Scott, the local police had been to his home numerous times for domestic disputes. His older brother and sister had run away from home, and he had tried to as well. Scott admitted that his stepdad was violent towards him and his mother. Later, while trying to sneak into the house, the boys heard Alf Podgus yelling at Rosemary. They hid under the porch in the rain. When the house went quiet, they crept in and slept on the pull-out couch in the living room. The following morning, Scott went upstairs to get some money. Bruce was suddenly startled awake by a loud sound. It was a gunshot. Scott ran downstairs, terrified. Alf Podgus had just fired one of his guns at him. Luckily, he had missed, and the bullet lodged in the wall. Let's get out of here, Scott yelled to Bruce. That day, Scott and Bruce decided they were going to steal the family van and drive back to Nova Scotia. Bruce was shocked by what was going on in the Podgus home and he didn't want to stay any longer. He knew Scott couldn't be around his stepfather. The man was a menace. Scott's mum had tried to calm the situation and reassure her son that her husband was only trying to scare him. He would never actually shoot you, she said. But that wasn't a risk Scott was willing to take. His mum had put up with years of abuse at the hands of her husband. But Scott had had enough. Later that night, the boys crept back into the house when they assumed Elf Podgus was asleep. But this time, they were armed and prepared. Scott and Bruce, who had never used a gun in his life, slept on the pull-out couch with two loaded rifles between them. At 8.20 the next morning, Scott went upstairs for a shower, taking his gun with him for protection. Bruce was still dozing on the couch when he was jolted awake by a booming blast. It was another gunshot. Bruce jumped up and ran towards the kitchen, terrified. Alfred had probably shot Scott and would come for him next. He had to get out of there and call the police. 
running towards the back door with the rifle in his hand, he suddenly collided with Rosemary Podgus. She had been in the kitchen making breakfast. The gunshot from upstairs had startled her. She looked as scared as Bruce was. What the hell was going on? Then, a second later, another deafening gunshot blast. Rosemary crumpled to the ground. Blood began seeping onto her floral housecoat. Somehow, the rifle in Bruce's hand had discharged, shooting her at close range in the abdomen. Scott suddenly appeared from upstairs with a rifle still in his hand. He looked down at his mother. It was clear that she was dead. What had just happened? Bruce was in shock. It was an accident, he muttered. The gun just went off. Now, there were two lifeless bodies in the house on Euclid Avenue. Rosemary Podgus lay dead on the dining room floor. And Scott had just killed his stepfather, Alfred, in the upstairs bedroom. On the night of Thursday, July 8th, one day after learning that her son Bruce and his friend Scott were missing along with Scott's parents, Alice Curtis received another visit from the RCMP at their rural farmhouse in the Annapolis Valley. This time, the officers informed her that the bodies of Alfred and Rosemary Podgus had been discovered in Pennsylvania and it was clear that both of them had been murdered. Alice contacted her husband, Jim, who was in Halifax. He needed to come home right away. The reality that the two boys had met the same fate was terrifying. But who would have done such a thing, and why? The RCMP weren't giving them much more information and they felt helpless living so far away. The Curtises decided they would drive to New Jersey. At least there, they might get more information from the local police, and they could organize a search for the two missing teenagers. Friends and other family members had already volunteered to help any way they could. But before they could arrange their trip, the Curtises were informed that their son had been located and he was alive. Bruce Curtis and Scott Franz had been found in a hotel room in Richardson, Texas, along with Scott's German Shepherd dog. They were both unharmed and officers were escorting them back to New Jersey. Alice and Jim were overwhelmed with emotion. Thank God Bruce was okay but their relief and joy were short-lived when the police advised them that Scott and Bruce had been arrested for the murders of Alfred and Rosemary Podgus. The boys were heading back to New Jersey in handcuffs. On the next episode of Nightmare in New Jersey... The Bruce Curtis Story. 18-year-old high school graduates 
Scott Franz, and Bruce Curtis have been arrested for the brutal murders of Scott's mother and stepfather. The New Jersey police are certain the boys shot Alfred and Rosemary Podgus in cold blood and then dumped their bodies in a park in Pennsylvania. But what actually happened in the house at 401 Euclid Avenue in the early morning hours of Monday, July the 5th, 1982? It was well known around the small New Jersey town that Alfred Podgus was a violent, angry man who collected guns and had threatened his stepkids on numerous occasions. Was there an altercation between Alfred and his stepson Scott? Did Scott kill him in self-defense? But what about Rosemary Podgus? Everyone loved her. Why was she murdered? And how is Scott's Canadian friend involved in all of this? Scott Franz and Bruce Curtis both have a story to tell. But which one will be the truth? Two teenagers on a summer holiday that turned into a nightmare. But who will pay the ultimate price for double murder? This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.